Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. The fans have won already. What a spectacular week of competition we have seen. On this episode, we're talking horsepower with Jason Line and Sportsman Drag Racing with Don O'Neill. And there is not a happier human being on planet Earth than the woman in that pro stock car. A pro stock hero and a hard runner and top sportsman. Goodbye, Snake, and hello, Ace. This is the NHRA Insider. And the wildest day in the history of this category is finally complete. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Brian Loans. We are back for another fun-filled week of discussion on the topic of NHRA Mellow Yellow Championship Drag Racing and the Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series, of which there was some news regarding Lucas Oil that came out last week. Some good news from Lucas Oil and the fact that Morgan Lucas, a guy who, of course, had great success in the world of top fuel drag racing and a guy whose parents, Charlotte and Forrest, have had a great effect on the sport of racing and not just drag racing, but racing all across the country and motorsports in general. They have done so much over the years and great to see that the man who stepped away from the world of top fuel drag racing a few years ago to concentrate on learning all the aspects, ins and outs, in every facet of the multidiscipline company that is Lucas Oil Products has now taken the reins of the company himself. So a very neat thing there for the family business. And we send our congratulations uh, both personally and professionally to Morgan Lucas for this uh, big, big step in his life. And it's going to be neat to watch him take the reins of the company and do his best to guide it and grow it as his mom and dad have so successfully done over the years. Unfortunately, not all the news coming out of the world of NHRA drag racing was good news over the last week. I'm sure many of you know and have heard of the passing of Sean Gann, who is a very well-known pro-stock motorcycle competitor, a unique guy, one of the real kind of interesting personalities in the world of NHRA drag racing, and it is uh, very sad to hear about his passing. It was sudden, certainly unexpected, and all of us uh, that had ever met and interacted with Sean, I think, have been sharing our stories regarding kind of who he was and how he interacted with him at the racetrack but uh, a good dude and we're just um, all kind of heartbroken to the fact that he is no longer with us and uh, myself personally and all of us with NHRA send our condolences to his family it's uh, just a really really tough thing there are other kind of shining more positive stories that have come out over the last couple of weeks of course a great interview with Glenn Cromwell done by Phil Burgess that goes over some of the mentality some of the reasoning behind what's gone on behind the scenes in putting together a 2020 schedule that as we now understand is set to resume at the August time frame and we're going to get more specifics on that in I believe the coming weeks in terms of when races will be held where they'll be held what the timing of them will be we're all waiting to see that. Um, it is neat to see the sport of drag racing start to kind of come back to life. It is beginning to stir a little bit. Last weekend, there was a small tire radial style race called Woo Stock held down in Darlington, South Carolina. This weekend, there will be the Lone Star Nats, which are happening at the Texas Motorplex. Top Alcohol Dragster, Top Alcohol Funny Car, the Midwest Pro Mod Series. You had the Throwdown in T-Town in Tulsa just a couple weeks ago. And you're seeing activity, whether it be testing or bracket racing or small closed ground grandstand style events happening at many tracks around the country thus far so uh, really positive signs happening everywhere and the most positive sign of those events are being well attended by racers and the events that are allowing fans even on a restricted basis seem to be doing very well so people are definitely excited they're pent up to get out of the house and go have some fun and get out there and, and watch and participate in the sport that they love 
as we look forward to today's show. We have Jason Lyon coming on. We're going to talk engines with Jason. I'm not real interested in going down the road of everything that's going on these days. I want to I want to change it up a little bit here this week. I want to talk to Jason about engine building. I want to talk to him about some of his, I guess, philosophies, theories, and maybe some dream builds he has. I always want to talk to guys like Jason who do this for a living because even they – the professional hot rodders among us do have the dream builds that they like to put together, and that's something I'd like to broach with him. And we have Don O'Neill coming on. And Don O'Neill, I'm sure you know him. He's a great personality in the world of sportsman drag racing, a guy who does a lot. He's out there with the Racers and Rental Cars podcast that he does with Cameron Foray, among other projects that he has going on. And he, of course, has a brilliant top sportsman car that is effectively a pro-stock car that has been repowered with a supercharged LS motor that you would find in a factory-stock showdown car. He did something that all of us wondered what would look like. What would it look like if somebody took one of those engines and stuffed it into a pro-stock chassis that is more refined, that is lighter, that is effectively uh, way more efficient than a factory-based car like they sit in in factory-stock showdown? So we're going to talk to Don about the teething process in that car the evolutionary process he's been going through as well as his take on just uh, the world of sportsman drag racing what he thinks what he may know some sportsman racers can do better in terms of marketing their programs because that is really don's strong suit he is a a guy who uh, is very passionate about the marketing and business side of drag racing and he's a guy that speaks of what he knows. If you look at Don O'Neill's cars, they are typically well-sponsored. He has NGK as a major sponsor, and he's a guy who has uh, really worked hard over the years, not only in the service of the United States as a man who spent more than 20 years in the Army, but as someone in drag racing who works very hard to keep the message out there, keep the message positive, and really keep drag racing, especially sportsman competition, out on the forefront of things. We got a great week of fun coming up on the NHRA content side of things. Some great NHRA time machine action going on. By the time you hear this, you'll likely have missed the first run of it, but you'll be able to watch the rerun of NHRA Time Machine Live, which is, if you've been watching, we've been doing these NHRA Time Machine segments where I kind of pull uh, old footage from maybe an old TV show or race and then set it up and, and kind of just hone in on exactly what's going on. Some of them are interesting, some of them funny, some of them poignant, but... It's uh, It's been a very fun trip through time. We're going to keep making those. But my idea for this week is that I brought on Jack Beckman and David Freiberger, and we did an NHRA Time Machine Live. So what we did between the three of us came up with a concept, which was to look at the evolution of Funny Car from the early mid-60s right up to about 1969. And in order to tell the story, you're not just going to hear us blabbering. We went back into the NHRA film archives, and we pulled out great race footage all the way back to the 64 Nationals with the Saxon Suns Comet with its blown fuel-burning engine right up to 1969 where you're going to see Danny on Gaius just crushing people and Mickey Thompson's Mustang. All of that is great stuff, and that is NHRA uh, Time Machine Live, which if you missed the first run of it, fear not. You can go and watch it on NHRA's YouTube or Facebook page, and I feel like if you love drag racing history, you'll dig it. Now, we haven't made it yet, so I'm telling you it's going to be good, and I don't even know if it's good yet. I think it's going to be good. Beckman and uh, Freiberger will carry the show. This week, uh, a show that you can listen to first run or watch first run, or if you missed the first run of it, you can always watch the same way on Facebook or on YouTube. It'll be Alan Reinhardt and I doing another episode of NHRA Shop Talk Live. And this week's episode is one you're not going to miss. It's called Why Stuff Blows Up. And we have compiled some of the most incredible, amazing, historical, and modern historically relevant slow motion footage of engines exploding on the racetrack. And we're going to walk you through why these things happen. 
what are the mechanical failures that these engines suffer that would cause such cataclysmic damage and just kind of go over some of the interesting mechanical odds and ends involved in not only fuel racing but pro stock and pro modified as well as nitro funny car and top fuel we are continuing to work behind the scenes to bring you drag racing content that's relevant and fun and it may be insightful, like shows uh, such as this one. Try to take you inside the world and the lives of people involved in NHRA drag racing, and we are inching ever closer to getting back to it. I promise. That is the best news that I can give you and the best that I can say at this moment. But we are getting closer, literally, by the minute. So without further ado, let's welcome our first guest onto this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. He is no stranger to these airwaves. He is no stranger to a dyno cell or an engine room. His name's Jason Line, and he is in the midst of his final season of competition as an NHRA Pro Stock driver. Hey, Jason, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you, Brian? Not too bad, man. I wanted to catch up with you today because... Um, it's like every week I get stuck in this rut of talking about all the junk that's going on, you know, in the sport and around the world. But I want to talk just about engines today. I want to change the mood a little bit and talk motors, and I feel like you're my guy for that. I like your thinking because uh, the other stuff is depressing, and uh, yeah, I think we're all tired of it for sure. Yeah, and typically when I build an engine, it's kind of depressing as well, but, but actually you're good at it, so that's, <laughs> that's why I wanted to talk well, to you. <laughs> any, anybody who's ever built one has been depressed at some point, yeah. <laughs> If, if they haven't, my favorite thing is when people say, yeah, geez, I've never had that problem. Well, you haven't built enough of them because <laughs> you, at, at some point you're going to experience every problem there is. So uh, it's just part of it. That's problem solving. That's what it is. So. Yeah, no, it's 100%. And uh, like you said, I, I can't imagine a guy like you that's uh, screwed together as many as you have. I'm sure you've seen enough stuff to, to make everybody else's, mere mortals like me, our heads spin around. But um, I just wanted to pick your brain on some stuff, man, and, and I felt like um, – I felt like now was a good time. So one of the first questions I have for you is, um, you know, the Buick engine platform, you're obviously known for working on the classic Buick engines because of the stock eliminator career and history. And I guess for you, what have been your biggest discoveries over time working on that engine platform? Like when you started to where you are now, what are the things you learned that made the most importance along the way? Well, I don't know. There, there's a lot of things, of course. And, you know, that engine is uh, – you know, the Buick guys will chastise me for saying this, but, you know, it, it's really not a great, uh, it's not a great, super well-engineered piece. Uh, you know, for, for its time, it was. And, you know, there's just a lot of things they didn't know then, but uh, uh, it has a lot of shortcomings. And, uh, you know, at some point, you're able to take those shortcomings and turn them into opportunities. So so it's kind of, um, yeah, there's a lot of good things to learn from that, that particular engine that applied to all the rest of them. But, uh, you know, obviously Chevrolet, they had a much uh, much better handle on the performance stuff than, uh, than what, what Buick did back then. And uh, they had a different approach as well. So, uh, um, you know, they're, they're all cool in their own way. And um, they're, they're all different. So, uh, and they all had a certain purpose. So everybody had their own idea like they still do uh, of how how it should be done so so the Buick in its own way is really uh it's, it's a cool engine it's just built way different than what a Chevrolet is yeah it's and that's I guess you know for for guys that are fans of you know stock eliminator racing and even you know some of the other categories like a top sportsman class where guys can get out there and do some different things it it does make it pretty fascinating um, I'm interested in, you know, outside of outside of pro stock engines, what is it, what is something you would love to build, like, in your mind? Because everybody's got one. Like, every hot rodder, racer, whoever, has that thing in the back of their mind that someday I'm going to do this. What is your kind of dream engine build? I, I don't know if I have a dream engine build, but but there is something I want to do, and uh, and I, I'd 
my guys in the shop, uh, when they hear me say this, they're going to they're gonna pound on me. But, uh, you know, I've never been a power adder guy. Don't not, not in love with them by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, if you want to really make huge smoke, that's that's what you do. you got to have a power adder. So um, I'd like to build a turbo engine someday just because my, my son, he's watched way too much Street Outlaws or whatever all that stuff. <laughs> nice. And so, you know, he's he's fascinated by turbochargers. So um, I, I think someday I'm going to have to build a, build a turbo engine just to – just to do it. So uh, I, don't, I don't know what it'll be, but something with a turbocharger. So uh, we're actually working on a, on a Chevy six cylinder right now, which is kind of uh, kind of fun as well. We just kind of started on it. Uh, it's going to be a cool project. We're doing it for classic instruments, and uh, they're they're, they're uh, interesting folks up there as well. So it's going to be uh, it'll be a fun project. So this uh, like a ninety degree V six or an inliner? Oh, a straight six. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. Well, that's uh, that's really neat. And, you know, to me, one of the interesting things, like, you know, you talk about your son, Jack, and, you know, Jack and I got boys about the same age, and our definition of what a big horsepower engine was when we were 13 to 15 years old versus their definition of what a big horsepower engine is now in that age bracket is completely different. I mean, it's incredible. Oh, it's, it's night and day. And, you know, for me, back then, if you had a 500-horse engine, you know, uh, you know, that was that was big 600 was like you know insane so like uh now you know when i I mentioned those numbers to him like you know he thinks it's cool because you know we you know we kept working on the big stocker and you know once you know the goal was to kind of get to uh you know felt like to to get a nine second time slip on on our dyno we had to make over 600 horse and the first time we did that it was like that was a big that was a big day you know so he was excited about it but but now it's like you know, he, he sees all this other stuff and, you know, he got five, three LS engines, you know, that somebody <laughs> drug out of a junkyard, put a turbocharger on and make a thousand horse. Well, you know, the, the Buick sort of pales in comparison. So, uh, but, you know, until he actually, you know, puts his foot into something that makes that kind of power, he, you know, I, I don't think he can really put it in perspective. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really cool stuff out there. And, and uh, you know, if you never leave your wheelhouse, then, uh you know, you kind of get stuck. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna do one. I don't know when, but we're gonna do one just to do it. So uh, you know, the the copo stuff kind of uh, you know made us think about things in a different way as well. And working on the, the supercharged engines, and, and they're fun and they're they're neat and they make awesome power. They're uh, you know, it's a great engine. Is it uh, is it in some ways more challenging? So obviously, making the you know making that type of power out of a out of a big block Buick engine is incredible, just for all the hurdles you have to get over. Is it as satisfying to take like a really good setup, a really well-engineered combination like an LS engine, and make it better? You know, is it is the satisfaction level the same there in terms of the engineering side of things, taking something that's already good and figuring out a way to make it better, as it is taking something that you know isn't that great and making it pretty good? I don't know. That's a good way of wording it, you know, because you know I'll get picked on for saying this too, but you know the LS and in all the those newer engines they make everybody an engine builder because if you can put the puzzle together it's going to make power i don't care what you do it's going to make good power so uh some might be better than others but i mean they're no matter what it's going to make power so there's so much good engineering that's been done already behind the scenes by the folks at gm and you know all these different different people that are involved in those projects over the years that uh you know a lot of the a lot of the thinking has been done for you and uh you, know, you can put it together and 
it'll make great power and you don't even know why. So, uh, <laughs> so, so, so working on one of those junkier engines kind of, uh, um, is a, a different kind of challenge. And, uh, for me, I, I probably enjoy that a little bit more. So no, that's cool. Uh, yeah. When when you look back over all the work you've done on pro stock engines and the gains you found and things that you've missed and all the stuff over time, do you ever look back and kind of laugh about what your perspective was when you first got into this business, pro stock specifically, in, turn, in terms of what you might have thought was good or what you might have thought worked and now stuff you know that was just the wrong way to go back then? Only when we think about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, like, I mean... It's, it's amazing. I wish, you know, even if you go back, you know, you know, five years uh, or back to the last year with the carburetor, you know, things have been much different because, you know, there were just a lot of mistakes that we, we had made and things we did that, uh, you know, they, there was a better way to do it. We just sort of, you know, you get tunnel vision sometimes and uh, um, it's one of the harder things for me and I think maybe a lot of people is when you get heavily vested into a project and, and you want it to work really bad. Sometimes it's hard to separate your your, uh, your heart from your head. Your your, uh, your labor of love gets involved, and you, you tend to maybe make decisions based off of that instead of, uh, of facts, or you just sort of convince yourself it's the right thing. And uh, as you get older, I think you get better at, at, at looking at the truth instead of uh, you know seeing seeing it the way you wanted it to be. So. Uh, yeah, I think we, we constantly laugh because there were so many things we didn't know and, and you know, five years from now we'll be doing the same thing. Do you have a favorite, other than removing the stalker engine out of the picture, do you have a favorite build that you put together over time, something that you just kind of really enjoy, something that you really enjoyed when you were doing it? Again, outside of the Buick Stock Eliminator stuff. Um, I don't know. Uh, the uh, Probably the... Some, we've done some Hemi, Hemi stuff and, uh, you know, old school Hemi stuff. And uh, I don't know, those are those are really cool, too. And a lot of challenges, you know, it's not certainly not the easiest thing in the world to, to build. So uh, certainly have lots of respect for uh, the folks who have made it run good over the years. Uh, they have great potential. Uh, they just, you know, going to have a lot of issues. But uh, I, I, I kind of like the, uh, I've gotten to be, uh, and this is sacrilege also, you know, but you know, a Buick guy cannot be a Hemi guy. Oh, right. So, no, that's the, yeah, that's the battle as old as time itself, man. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and so, so, uh, we have an internal battle at our shop because we've got a, got a couple, couple of each. So, uh, I don't know. I'm stuck in the middle. I really, uh, you know, it's hard to, hard to deny an old school Hemi. Uh, they're, they're pretty <laughs> impressive. You know, your brother's also a very successful engine builder up there in Minnesota. Uh, how do your philosophies line up or maybe deviate you and your brother? Do you see everything the same way? I'm, I'm guessing no on that, but I'm interested in what the differences are. Well, my mom dropped him when he was little. <laughs> and, and so, so he's a, you know, he likes Fords, and uh, he, he's, uh, he's always been a Ford guy. He, really, he's not, but uh, but he, he likes the, you know, he likes the Cobra Jet Mustangs and the FEs and the and uh, the truth is, I do too. But uh, it gives us something to argue about. So, uh, no, we have we have different views on, on a lot of things, which is which is great because uh, you know you can't you can't have the same perspective. Uh, and so, and he looks at things completely different than I do in, in a lot of ways because you know we've been fortunate enough to, to work in a shop like ours where it's it's been more about learning all the time, not necessarily making money. So, yeah, uh, which which that's changing, of course. Uh, 
uh, where he looks at it from, uh, you know, he's got to survive. And, and uh, so it costs a lot of money to learn things. So, so there's, he, he sort of brings you back to reality and some, some kind of a good balance there. You know? So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's all good. Now, uh, two more questions. The first is, over the past, your your history of car ownership and owning hot rods and everything else, what is the most disappointing engine from the muscle car era that you ever owned or drove? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, the disappointing one I've ever driven. They had to have been something that was a total pig that you thought would have been better than it was. Yeah, Gosh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I would definitely offend, offend somebody. You'll plead uh, the fifth. I understand. I understand. You'll plead the fifth. I get it. But you were thinking about it. That's the important part. <laughs> well, it's funny. It, it's funny because you know all the OEMs. They, they really they they did some neat stuff and they were they were pretty smart. You know they 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 had different ways of going about it because you know of the technology that was available at the times. So, you know everything we learned really you know spawns from them in, in, in the end. But uh, you know, Ford did some really, really cool things. Uh, some things that you know still are hard to do today. And then they did some stuff that I mean, they made they made a few dogs. For yeah, sure. so, <laughs> they did. They so, did. Yeah. So, but anyway, so no, we'll I, leave it at that. Yeah. Anything. Anything. Uh, you know, and I will. I will own these words. But anything that happened. Um, you know, anything that ends with an M is pretty. Is pretty sad. You know, it, meaning. Yeah. So yeah, we, we yeah. where we're going there. Yeah. And yeah, I guess, they could have done better on that one. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> so, uh, final question for um, for you is, you know, we talked about the LS engine. Uh, we talked about you guys touching a touching a modern uh, inline six Chevy engine. Um, what other engine platforms kind of got your interest right now? What other things uh, does any of the overhead cam Ford stuff kind of kind of make your ears perk up at all? What what else is out there as far as the modern stuff right now that you'd like to get your hands into? I've I've looked at. You know, I've looked at one of those, and uh, that one uh, it, it, it scares me just a little bit. So, <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure I'm ready to, to tackle that yet. But uh, they're, uh, yeah, obviously they're they're good engines as well. But uh, we're actually finishing up a, a 6.2 direct injection engine, uh, um, Chevy direct injection engine, and uh, that's kind of cool. It's um, Really uh, anxious to run on the dyno and see see where we're at, but uh, we'll know here shortly. But that's that's a cool engine as well, and uh, you know the direct injection is a big 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 departure, and uh, haven't really uh, you know we're just touching the surface and trying to uh, learn it and understand it. So, uh, but it'll be a, it'll be a fun one as well, and uh, be anxious to see how how uh, I guess our approach applies to that engine and see where it ends up. Now that's really cool. And when those direct injection engines first came out, like every new engine platform, immediately everybody goes, "Oh, no one's going to be able to hot rod these. No one's going to do anything with them. It's over with." And then, like within six weeks, someone's like, "Oh, I made a thousand horsepower with this thing," or you know, yeah. And a lot of absolutely, this, yeah. A lot of the stuff with the direct injection to start with was all kind of just supplemental stuff. Guys would put an intake manifold on with extra fuel injectors in it. But I think. You know, to me, the technology is advanced to the point now where it seems like you guys have some resources available, whether from camshaft companies or whatnot, to really, you know, maximize the DI end of the engine rather than having to supplement it with the uh, with an additional fuel system, basically. Yeah, I, I think there's probably a lot of room to make it better, and uh, you know, we'll know because obviously we started with the stock engine, and uh, you know, uh, 
seen that they make for, for power. So uh, we'll, we'll know. Uh, we'll know as soon as we, uh, as as we drop the hammer on it, we'll know whether we went the right way or the wrong way. So, uh, uh, but yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm sure that it's going to be uh, significantly better. I'd like to think it is. And we'll, we'll find out soon. Jason Line, he builds engines, he races pro stock, and he is cruising down the highway. Thank you, sir, for taking the time, and I look forward to seeing you at a drag strip somewhere sooner rather than later. Thanks, Jason. Hopefully. Thanks, Brian. Always great to catch up with Jason Line. Always great to talk to a real professional when it comes to their field. Jason, of course, one of the premier engine builders in drag racing and a guy who will continue to build engines for long into the future after he gets out of the seat of his pro stock car. So joining us on the Insider Podcast here for the very first time, you know him, you love him, top sportsman racer, longtime NHRA sportsman competitor, Mr. Don O'Neill. How you doing, sir? What's going on, Mr. Loans? How are you doing today, sir? I am good. I left out of your introduction and your accolades the fact that uh, you and Cameron Foray uh, have the popular Racers in Rental Cars podcast. So I guess I want to start by getting a little background on that show that uh, I know a lot of people listen to. Yeah, you know, I tell the story all the time, and I think people think that I'm just making it up to make it colorful, but Cam, uh, I guess we're getting ready to be on about 24, 26 months ago, called me up and said, hey... They want me to do a podcast, and I want to do it with somebody fun, so uh, I'm calling you, and I'm like, yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, here we are, you know, fast forward, getting ready to be two years soon, and if you would have told me, you know, two years ago that we'd have the following that we do uh, and get the feedback from marketing executives and race car drivers and team owners and so forth across the country, I would have told you that I think you've been drinking too early in the day. (laughs) Um, but we have, we, we've had a great time with it. We're still continuing to reinvent ourselves. As you know, you've, um, you and Joe totally, um, you know, set the bar extremely high for the rest of us out there in the world to achieve, you know, and strive to have something because it's, it is, there's no, you know, if you want to use the word mentorship, me being a military guy, it's very hard, uh, to find people that, truly pull out the same mentorship you know playbook you know when you talk about leadership and so forth you always have a playbook there are certain characteristics and traits that you look for and for us in our podcast world uh you know in social streaming if you will man the the, the playbook is ever changing and i believe it's wrote in invisible ink oh no it's, it's a fact and uh you know for us um you know on the on the nhra side of things like you know it's it's this fun. It's not a fun process to be in it for the reasons that we're in it, but it's been a fun process to go and like every week we make something different. Like we make the same stuff. Like we do the podcast every week, of course, and we do our Skype interviews. But you know, this week we're trying this uh, time machine live thing. You know, this afternoon we're going to do it with Freiburger and Beckman. Like every week we're just trying something new, and not really because the other stuff's failing. All of it's doing pretty good, but because why not? You know, we have a once in a lifetime shot to try something here, and if it catches fire, then we can keep doing it. So to your point. Um, yeah, they're, the playbook, you basically write the playbook every week, uh, whether you're doing a podcast or you're doing internet streaming or whatever. And I think that's what's so fun about listening to your show, listening to Joe's show, listening to listen to Luke's show. Like everybody has their own approach and their own take on it. And all of them are good for their own reasons, right? That these type of shows to me always fit the personalities that are a part of them, which makes them unique and cool. 
Oh, I, I totally agree with that. And I also think the characteristic of the background of where, you know, you take, you, you know, you take you, you're NHRA on Fox, you are, a, you know, you're the cheerleader, you're the face. Sure. So, you know, you don't want the head coach coming down and browbeating you. And then you have Joe, <laughs> you know, you have Joe over there. Joe is, Joe is also becoming a face of NHRA and so forth. So he has to, you know, and then you have me and Cam and we're just the, you know, one's a West coast kid. The other one's some knucklehead country boy from North Carolina. And, you know, we all have our own take on certain things based on where we are in the cycle and experience of life and education and so forth when it comes to motorsports. So I couldn't agree with you more uh, because I'm sure that we don't all agree. And that's what makes the world of talk shows or podcasts or social media sharing. It's what makes it fun. It's what makes it entertaining. Exactly. And uh, you have, you have segued into the first stuff I want to get into here very perfectly, uh, maybe unwittingly, but perfectly. Um, so today we're, we're, we're recording this show on a Tuesday morning. It is uh, 10 a.m. Eastern time right now. And um, you are a Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series competitor and top sportsman now, but you've raced a multitude of categories over the years. And a little bit later today, the schedule for 2020 will be released. And on that schedule, including the schedule, will be how the points are going to be set up this year and all kinds of other stuff. So what I want to do, Don, is I want to tell you a bunch of stuff that's going to happen, and everybody else is going to learn about it in a couple hours. But I'm really interested to get your 100% honest gut opinion on the things I'm about to tell you. Okay, make sense? Like, I don't want it sugarcoated. I want you to go, oh, I hate it, or I love it, or whatever. Okay. Oh, oh man. Later on, later on today, I'm going to get an email from Glenn and and Ned and <laughs> uh, and Josh. Okay. All right. Let's have fun with it. See what happens. All right. So um, I guess as we know, this particular weekend, uh, the Lucas Oil Series kind of officially restarts down at the Texas Motorplex. They're having their uh, Lone Star Nats, and that's only going to be Top Alcohol Dragster and Top Alcohol Funny Car. So the I guess official be- restart of the season is going to really begin the first weekend in June. Atlanta Dragway and Tulsa are planned to have uh, races June 5 to 7. And really, that kicks everything off because after that, everybody's schedule kind of it doesn't go crazy. And you'll be able to see all the divisional schedules on NHRA.com. But the reality is, first weekend in June, it starts and it race basically runs the normal length of time. Uh, right through the end of August for Division 6 and right through the end of October for Division 7. So I guess uh, my first question is uh, your impressions on being able to go race in first weekend in June. I think that is an awesome announcement to hear. Um, you know, there are other racing organizations that, that went out there and, and they've done, you know, uh, bracket racing, uh, Midwest Pro Mod Series, uh, we're getting ready PDRA is at the end of the month. They're out there and they're trying to get it going, obviously, based on state legislators. And we're all ready to go race, uh, you know, I, whether it's for the passion or the business. You know, I, I'm from the standpoint, you know, we have major sponsors that, you know, they want to see us on the racetrack. So the sooner, the better that we can get back after it. Everybody has their own a list of reasons and justifications why they want to get racing. Uh, and so, you know, that's going to be awesome to uh, kick it off, get down south the first week in June in Atlanta. Woo! I think we'll have some track temps. <laughs> okay, the next the next big announcement, and this is a legitimately big one. <clears throat> there has been a second Lucas, or rather a second JEGS Sports Nationals added to the schedule that will be run at New England Dragway August 21st and 22nd. Now that's huge. Yep. And, 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 and it's not, 
huge for it, you know, from the standpoint, oh, you know, we've been sitting on the sidelines getting ready to go racing. It's huge because the D1 guys had so many things you know, work against them on the schedule. And so for them to get the opportunity to get a national event claim with the reduction and the moving around and reorganization of the national event schedule, that's huge. So, uh, I, you know, new England, uh, I hope they fly you in there for that so you can have the historic first time, uh, of doing that up North. So, uh, congrats to, to the family up there and to Jegs for putting that on for the guys in the Northeast. I bet that will be a, a very heavily attended event uh, in the D1 footprint. I think it will be as well. Uh, if the NHRA, you know, if the schedule, I think, is the big time, the mellow yellow schedule, if that goes the way I perceive it will go, I'll probably be occupied that weekend. But if not, I will definitely be there to uh, support that event. I'm very excited to hear that. I think it's a great thing for New England Dragway. Obviously, not having the mellow yellow series event, you know, for the fan standpoint is one thing. But to your point, you know, being able to have a national event claim if you're chasing points and all that other stuff, it, it makes a big deal. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are concerned about, well, what happens? with my grade points i'm not gonna be able to get a point for participating in this and that you're not going to fall behind in that respect either no i mean heck they might you might even do that event pro bono right I, oh, i'm sorry uh i don't speak italian is that i don't speak french or german uh i think there's a interruption in the connection i didn't really Can hear you hear me brian brian are you there brian brian Okay, so now here's some stuff that is uh, directly going to affect anybody that's running for points. Now, this is how the structure will be for Comp Eliminator, Super Stock, Stock, Super Comp, Super Gas, Super Street, Top Dragster, and Vortex Superchargers, Top Sportsman. Now, listen up. Okay. So, if you're running for a national championship, it'll be the best three of five national events and the best five of seven divisionals. What's your impression there? So, they put uh, everybody on the same plan yes. that top sportsman and top dragster has been running for the, the previous years. And then they took away one opportunity uh, on the divisional side, if you will. Uh, that's fair. Uh, I honestly would have probably liked to have seen it come back a little bit more than that. Uh, because I think, you know, when you start looking at the opportunities, obviously you had the schedule uh, you know, trying to see the logistics aspect yeah. of the self-employed business owners. Uh, and, you know, I mean, when you start talking about the Lucas Oil Series, the, the competition list in there, you know, it's not a cheap sport to be involved with oh, chase and, and go. And so I think, you know, I was kind of hoping that it was actually going to come back. I, the national hit spot on where I thought I was like, bring everybody back, give everybody five opportunities, get your best three. Uh, obviously with the sports nationals being in there at Columbus, if they get the pull out off, that will help a lot of people in the Midwest, South East coast region. Uh, the five out of seven, I, I like, you know, I was kind of hopeful that it was going to, you know, possibly go to like three out of five. Uh, just because of how hectic the summer schedule into the fall uh, may perhaps be based on uh, business owners, where they need to be, where they're trying to recover to. Yeah. Um, you know, and then also on top of that, all of us that have kids, college kids, and, and everything else that's going to go on, uh, you know, later on in the fall, which will, you know, possibly make things challenging. I was kind of hopeful for a little pullback on, on the divisional claims. But, you know, to see them try to level that out, short of them saying, guys, 
all of you world champions that have gold cards and silver cards for 2019, you're going to get to use them in 2020, or I'm sorry, in, yeah, 20 in 2000, 21, yeah. into 21. That would have been like the next best thing that I think would have been fair to a lot of people. Um, Cause you know, we, when you're winners, when you win and you work your freaking butt off and your family and, and you're, you know, and then you're like, man, I've been sitting at home for 10 weeks. I can't do anything to defend this. You know, I feel, you know, yeah. you know, sympathetics to those guys. So I like the points. Uh, now it'll just be how the schedule falls across the country into certain areas where, you know, certain legislative parties are just, you know, they're, they just, they took their glove and ball and bat, and they went home. They're not really interested in playing today. The next thing I'll give you is the divisional uh, points, how you, how, would, how you would chase a divisional championship, the best five of seven races, two of which must be home divisional events, but you need not claim home divisional events. Thoughts? That's awesome. That'll make a lot more flexibility into – Again, we're you know the contingency plan of, of people their different objectives uh, in their personal and business life. Um, you know that gives you know if you only got to get two, uh, nine times out of ten you can figure out how to get two. Uh, a lot of times it becomes the other, the other four or five based on schedule uh, that becomes the challenge. Um, you know, being in the Midwest, we again, I, it, this is a, a unique time with with different parts of the country being open, different parts of the country being closed, where we can go, where we can't go. Uh, so that'll be that'll be good. So I guess what you're saying too. Let me clarify that. How many of those? So you can have as many as you want out of division to make up seven, but you must have two. Correct. Best five of seven okay. races must enter a minimum of two home divisional events. And then in parentheses, it says need not claim home divisional events. Okay. So I, I guess I hope on your sheet there we're going to have a conversation about how we're going to lay out Jegs All-Stars in 2021. Now, on that, that I don't have yet. I know okay. that that is being worked on. I will say this also, what I don't have is uh, at this point there has been no final decision on, um, you know, how grade points are being, you know, how grade points will be handled for 2021. But that um, that's – Basically, the wording is, as officials built the Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series divisional and regional schedule, careful consideration is being taken on grade points for 2021. At this time, no final decision has been made. Once a decision has been made, an announcement will follow. So the grade point stuff will follow that. And, yeah, the Jegs All-Stars, um, I'm sure that we'll be hearing about that in the next uh, you know, the next several weeks in terms of how that program is going to be uh, altered and edited for uh, for this, but I guess overall, I guess uh, what I'm hearing from you anyway, impressions are it's good. You would have liked it to be a little bit greater, but you'll take you'll take what you got, even though a couple of tweaks you would have liked to put in your back pocket. Absolutely, yeah, and it, and again, and, and Cam and I've talked, you know, talked this. You and I've talked about it. I don't I don't envy anybody in the boardroom trying to make a decision. That is going to make everyone happy Absolutely. in the majority, you know, as your customer base, right? Lee Iacocca said it best. Uh, but at the same point, you, you have to try to, you know, keep in the back of your mind that 90% of your customer base are business owners. They're self-employed business executives. Uh, they've got companies to run. They have families uh, that depend on them and their success. And so, you know, uh, when you make the decision of go- loading your stuff up to go to a race and you still have employees that are laid off and their families are struggling because uh, you're trying, you know, you get those, um, you got those uh, ethical situations in there. So, uh, 
and we're all passionate about motorsports. God, we wouldn't, I mean, if you're not, I mean, what the hell are you doing? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know? So, uh, but yeah, no, that's, um, that's an actual doable deal. It's just, it's going to be tough. It'll be a challenge. Yeah. So one of the things uh, I also wanted to talk to you is the fact about, and I think some people know a little bit about this, and I prefaced it at the start of the show, but, you know, your top sportsman operation is really, really cool. And in my mind, it's, um, it's answering this theoretical question that people have had for many years now since the advent of factory stock showdown, which is what happens if we take a factory stock showdown engine and put it in a pro stock chassis effectively. And um, you were basically the first guy to do it. And I want to talk to you about the development of that program and kind of what you, you know, what have been the stumbling points for you? What have been the learning points for you? And then what are the things you've looked forward to for 2020 going on what you've learned? Yeah, it was a, a significant undertaking. We thought, you, you know, you, how hard could it be? We're right. just going to, I mean, you know, we're just going to pull it out of here and stick it in here. Um, and we did, though. We because we were, um, which we had great support from from the folks at Magnuson and Holly and and so forth, and the you know the elite guys. We, to be able to go and put something together, we learned a lot last year. Uh, of where we needed to be we've every time we went to the racetrack or the hub dyno or testing or whatever the case may be we found a weak link a weak link and it continued um and so now here we are we worked really hard through the winter uh because we had a chance to to catch up on that stuff and, and to be ready to go at the beginning of the year and and right now we've worked on a few things and found a couple more weak links uh you know courtesy of of joe o and and the guys at hyperactive on the hub dyno and we're getting ready to go back next week uh to the hub dyno again to to be able to improve and we don't feel like we've hit the ceiling yet on what the potential is uh economically we're probably getting pretty close yeah right to to, to that side because again you know you could spend anything yep. to make you know to make this go faster uh but i think economically speaking to be able to build what we did put it in a pro stock car lightweight and to be able to go 670s and, and probably gonna you know our, our fingers crossed knock on wood as i'm sitting here we're gonna you know we're gonna get in the 60s you know this year right off the bat and and keep moving forward it has been a challenge but again i don't I think it is the future. I think it, you know, we have uh, Bo Butner drove Jack Hodges car earlier this year at Pomona yep. and F- and Phoenix, and it's got a coyote motor in it, but it's a legitimate pro stock car. Uh, we have ours, you know, JC Beatty's taking an LS deal with, with his pro mod deal. I, you know, I feel like it's a way to move forward in the future and not price yourself out to the point that you go, man, I'm spending so much money. Um, yeah, but you don't have to. Yeah, no, I think it, what the most interesting part of it to me is a lot of times in not just drag racing, but in motorsports, we see people, you know, answer questions nobody asked, you know, like like people do bizarre things, which are sometimes cool to look at and watch, but ultimately a lot of times fail. Whereas your project really did answer a question and continues to answer a question. And as you said, it's it's a it's a growing, I guess I would call it a trend at this point, kind of a growing trend and approach. Um and for people who don't understand or know what a hub dyno is, I, I, I of course, am understanding. I know Joe O really well and all the work he's done out there. But explain to the listeners why a hub dyno has become one of the great kind of tuning tools of modern drag racing. Yes. Yeah. When you can take your vehicle and bolt it to the dyno, 
and make make laps in your race car with just focusing strictly on the drivetrain, the engine, the tune-up, the transmission, the, the torque converter curve, the gear curve. When you can sit there and focus on that in a facility, whether not a, a factor, uh, time of day, not a factor, length of time of day, not a factor, you take out all of those you know, variables that you have to play with or plan for to go to on track testing. Um, and it is a phenomenal way to continue to improve when you can make 15, 20 pulls in a day, uh, and continue to improve every time you let go of the trans brake button or drop the clutch or whatever the case may be based on, on driveline it's just huge and it it's comparable to the amount of money investment that you would spend to go rent a racetrack for the day. Uh, and you're only getting, you know, eight to 10 hours of on track time when you're just making a pull, you know, on the hub dyno and it's completely phenomenal. Uh, Joe's a great guy, him and his team, Greg, uh, a wealth of knowledge really shrunk the learning curve for us on the EFI and the blower, just being on the, on the hub dyno, uh, his time this year, we switched over from Al- VP alcohol, you know, M one, and we're over on to C 25 and Q 16 this year. Okay. And, and the time frame that we were with Joe to, to make the tune up changes, just, there's no way you can go to the racetrack and, and get that done in a short period of time. Um, and, and, you know, we rolled out after we broke a few things on the hub dyno a few weeks ago and I'm like, well, I guess if I needed to, I could go to the racetrack and, and let go of the button. He's like, absolutely. And there's nothing you, there's nothing more confidence building, uh, than to roll out of a building and say, okay, we can go to the racetrack and now we can just focus on, the chassis setup, strut, struts, weight and balance, four link location, wheelie bar height. Um, and so you shorten your curve and you increase your preparedness time to, to be successful. What for you has been, and I'm interested, what's been the biggest mechanical challenge on the car in terms of, you know, getting it to where you want it to be for you, not just for you personally, but in terms of just the overall package, what is the one thing that maybe, maybe was more difficult than you expected it would be in this process? The blower belt, for the love of God, uh, the and I got us and I have to back up. So the blower belt's on the back of the Magnus and it's very small and, and I don't have problems with that anymore. I did the first couple times, the drive belt system on the front, being able to control belt tension under the two step, uh, yeah. at the top, at the top of the gear change. Uh, we've posted some videos out there of, just how ridiculously oh, out of control it's right. insane yeah <laughs> and so you know we've partnered with a company um that's very successful right now that in doing these different belt tensioners we've got a second version that we've got bolted onto the car right now here in the shop that we're going to load up and take back to the hub dyno next week and we feel like it's at 99 percent. you know we went from a 50 percent ratio or, or success rate to to 90 uh, a few weeks ago and now we're to 99 um and so we, yeah. just for just to jump in real quick for people listening the reason why this is such a problem is when the engine is on the two-step you know when, when don goes and stages the car and puts the engine on that two-step rev limiter that the, the supercharger belt is doing just ungodly things. You can go on YouTube and find videos, but what's happening is it's it's bouncing, it's flexing, and and, when, and Don talks about the, the belt tensioner. It's just like the belt tensioner on your streetcar that you drive around. Now, normally, 
on your streetcar, everything's pretty much calm and collected in the front of the engine, and that belt, the tensioner is just there to keep the belt as it stretches, just to keep it tight enough. In a race car, of course, it's doing a lot more than that because of the extreme tension or stress on the belt itself. So yeah, keep going, man. I, I just want to make sure people understand. No, what Absolutely. Short of me using a lot of colorful words, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, one of the engineers for the company uh, told me, he was like, he goes, we are surprised that you ever kept a belt on the car, uh, you know, based wow. on their engineering layouts. And, and, you know, they run all these different engineering models, you know, these, you know, they measure and all these different plotted points. And they're like, yeah, you know, it's 7,600 RPM. You had less than 10%. Uh, belt contact to your to your pulleys and i'm going what wow. and they're like yeah we don't know how you kept a belt on the car and i'm going huh and i okay. guess the, to me the interesting <laughs> question on the tensioner side of things is i would guess and this is just a blind guess of things but if it was way too stiff the belt is just going to snap right because it's not going to give and if obviously if it's too loose it's going to be too kind of flopping around like a fish under there so is that the balance is it is it finding that i guess spring rate or whatnot to just control the belt movement Absolutely. I mean, and the one thing that goes along with that is the amount of boost that you can make. So if you think about the belt being too tight and it wrapping up the crank and, and putting a lot of tension between the jack shaft on the blower and the crank hub and you get too tight, you then have a parasitic loss of turbo of boost on the supercharger. And if you, then if you can find the loose spot just a little bit, you pick up boost. But at the same point, you've got to control it. And we actually, on the hub dyno, uh, found a, a, by accident, found a pulley combination where we actually picked up two pounds of boost. And all we did was remove a pulley and an idler and change locations. And that's the kind of, you know, and two pounds of boost for us is probably 40, 40 horsepower. Yeah, that's real power, uh, man. That's real power. Yeah. And so it's just, it's one of those things where you have to get, some intelligent people involved with you uh, that can run the, you know, the, the plotting programs and so forth and come up with the ideas and, and uh, prove it, you know, on a computer. And then you get to prove it <laughs> on the front of your car. <laughs> so, nice. uh, yeah, so we're, I mean, we are, we're, we're looking forward to it. And um, I, I mean, it's way cool to do it. People walk by my car and they go, oh, it's just a Camaro. And then they, they see what's sitting on top of it and they go, <laughs> Whoa, it's not just a Camaro. So. Yeah. No, it's great. It's uh, it's super fun to watch the evolution of the project. And, and again, as you mentioned, I, I honestly think you're at the front of something that's going to become you know more and more popular as the years go on. I feel like um, as you guys both, you know, yourself, Beatty, uh, Jack Hodge and those guys, as everybody in their own way starts to prove this out. And you know how it works. You know, the, the more people that get involved in a, in a particular platform, program, design, whatever, you end up with this almost crowdsourced development because it it's just like a guys that are an independent fuel car team versus a guy that has four cars and is, and is stable. The guy with the four cars is going to end up benefiting because of the collected information. I think people that are working on this combination or this style of combination down the road will benefit from all the work that you're doing right now, which is cool. Well, I hope so. And if I can get anybody out there to start throwing weight on these guys that want to go buy 700 and 800, 900 inch motors and throwing them in the top sportsman cars, uh, you know, I would, uh, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm going to start sounding like Ricky Smith and, and, Steve, and, Steve, and Stevie here pretty soon. I'm a, Hey, can I, can I get some, can you throw some weight on these guys over here? I mean, gee whiz. 
but no, we we are. We're looking forward to it. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, think about. I mean, Brian, think back. Let's go five years. Now, I mean, probably we could really go three. Pro Charger, you know, you turn around in the staging lanes in a top sportsman or top dragster deal, and everybody's got a nitrous motor or a, you know, or a root style blower. And then it became a Pro Charger, and then it was this version of a Pro Charger and that version of a Pro Charger, uh, and and here we are. And now you can't, you know, you go in the staging lanes at a top dragster event, you're gonna, you know, you're the minority if you've got a bottle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so uh, we feel like the same thing is going to continue to move forward. Uh, in the top sportsman ranks, uh, you know, whether it's turbos or, you know, there's a few folks out there with, with pro charger systems and, and so forth moving forward. And we're just going about it a, a little different. And as I tell everybody, I'm going to be the littlest engine in the field with an OEM blower. That's for you, Jack Hodge out there, in, out there in <laughs> Oklahoma. That, that's for you. He, he's been texting me all week. He wants to, be, he wants to get a match race together. Oh, nice. And, and I told him, I'm like, I'm in, I'm like, I got no problem with it. You know, I, I'm still going to be the, the quickest and fastest OEM blower, uh, in the class. And, uh, and we are, and we're going to hold on to that and, you know, hold on to whatever I can, uh, at my little 427 cubic inches. I'm going to hold on to whatever I can, Brian. <laughs> I like it. I got one last question for you, Don, then I'm going to let you go. And I guess uh, my last question for you is, you know, when, when I look over your whole racing program, it's always uh, it's always interesting because it is multifaceted. You know, the work that you do, not just on your own car, but the work you do put in on the marketing and sponsorship side is always, uh, you know, very impressive to me. So when you survey your whole racing operation from you driving the car to you, you know, working with different businesses, companies like Magnuson, what's your biggest strength as a racer? Ooh, good question. Um, biggest strength as a racer to bring to the table. I, I, I would like to say my education to be able to talk to a company with the multitude of hats that you would have to have if you were a big umbrella operation like DSR, or JFR, or Elite. Uh, but at the same time, know that I came up the hard way in the ranks. And so the customers that a lot of companies are looking for, I resonate with uh, across my military career. So I think just the, the road that you take um, or the road that I took, how about that, to, to get there, to be able to work with those companies and, and not lose sight of what their ultimate goal is, and that's to create sales and new customers and uh not for me to not lose sight of what my goal is and that's to be able to get paid to drive a race car after serving in the army for 23 years so uh i think we all have to have those regardless of what level we are in our racing and uh, or where we are in our career i like it man that was a great answer don o'neill thanks so much for taking the time today and uh thanks so much for giving your uh, honest and immediate opinions on news that no one in the world has heard yet other than you and then they won't for another couple of hours until uh, that gets released so i appreciate it man i look forward to seeing you down the road at the drag strip and i uh, hope all stays well out there in beautiful indiana thank you very much brian for having us we greatly appreciate it 
And that brings to a close another episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast, one where we got to talk engines with Jason Line, and we got to break Lucas Oil Drag Racing Sportsman News with you right here on the airwaves. What a week of news it is going to be. It's only Tuesday, and we got the Lucas Oil schedule coming out and some promises of other information that we'll be dropping over the course of this week. Please stay tuned to all the NHRA social media channels and NHRA.com for breaking news as it applies to the NHRA Mellow Yellow Drag Racing Series, E3 Spark Plugs Pro Modified Series, the Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series, of course, and the Mickey Thompson Top Fuel Harley-Davidson category, as well as the samtech.edu factory stock showdown. This episode's been fun to make. Hopefully it's been fun to listen to. We'll be back with another one next week here on the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Lones. <laughs>